Past Dark is intended for adults only. Listener discretion is advised. Why does my heart go on beating? Why do these eyes of mine cry? This is Skeeter Davis. Classic country fans will recognize her as a legendary Grand Ole Opry performer for over 40 years. A composer of 70 songs, singer of numerous hits, the winner of varied awards and accolades. Classic pop fans will recognize her as the performer of the haunting tune, End of the World, released in 1963 and a top five crossover hit still popular on oldies radio. And film fans may recognize the tune as the soundtrack to Daisy Suicide in Girl Interrupted, the 1999 film starring Winona Ryder, Angelina Jolie, and the late Brittany Murphy as the doomed Daisy. The End of the World 45 plays on repeat on Daisy's teenage turntable drifting over the scene like a cold wind over moonlit formica, making out of conventional pop format a tragedy occurring in a candy-colored world where nothing was ever supposed to go wrong. And it is a fitting path into the haunted world of Skeeter Davis. Born Mary Frances Pinnock in Kentucky, Skeeter's life was disproportionate in its tragedy and eerie in its details. This deeply religious, self-proclaimed country hippie bloomed out of a hard-scrabble background common to country performers of the time. But her life was laced with uncanny events, precognitive visions, and voices that guided her from beyond. The long shadow of murder would fall upon her family while she was still very young, and a crushing loss in the very beginning of her career would usher in years of psychological abuse and manipulation, followed by two loveless marriages and a ban from the Grand Old Opry. This gentle outsider nonetheless forged a successful career in country politan Nashville, marrying the infamous drugstore truck-driving man himself, Ralph Emery, whose legendary status in Nashville hid a secret proclivity for cruelty and violence. Despite her influence on countless artists, her own legacy would be denied her in the town that made her famous. This is a story of second sight and family secrets, murder and mind control, Nashville and nightmares, and all-night DJs. This is the story of Skeeter Davis and its past story.
When Mary Frances was a little girl, her mother Sarah told her a curious story. There was an old wives' tale about how if you placed a snail in an envelope on the first May morning of the year, it would spell out the name of the man you were to marry. So, on May the 1st, 1929, Sarah, whom everyone called Ponzi, opened the envelope, and there in the snail trail, clear as day, was the name William. As she was just then dating a goat farmer she wasn't quite fond enough of, whose name was also William, she threw the paper away in disgust, determined to never marry. But it was only a couple of years later, in 1931, while trying to hop aboard a freight car, that she met the right William. Mary Frances's father, William Lee Pennick, was a tobacco farmer in Kentucky who was just then working the railroad, catching train hoppers like this precocious young girl before him. He asked her where she was headed, and she asked him, Where is this train going? He told her, From here to Sparta, then Wordsville, on to Louisville, then on to New Orleans. Ponzi then said, Well, then that's where I was headed. Ponzi was a restless soul, a woman who could disappear for months at a time, just wandering, hopping the trains or hitching rides with her sisters. In spite of her wanderlust, she married Skeeter's father after only a month of courtship on March the 2nd, 1931. Mary Frances would be born in Sarah's parents' clapboard shack precisely nine months later, on December the 30th, 1931 the first of seven children born to the couple. And just two years after Mary Frances was born, a shadow would fall over the family. Dilver Webster, her great-uncle, had begun an incestuous relationship with one of his own nieces, and the fact was discovered by another family member, Punzi's brother George, who caught the two in the barn and threatened to tell his father, who Skeeter always refers to as Grandpa Roberts. But Jim Roberts was still unaware of any of this when he walked up to Dilver's shack one cold January day to bring his share of the money from the tobacco crop both had brought in. Dilver knew that Grandpa Roberts tended to tie one on after getting paid and was well known to be a kind reasonable man when sober, and the exact opposite when he wasn't. So thinking that a drunken Jim Roberts was coming for him, Dilver shot him dead. But the story only grew murky from there. Family lore said that Jim Roberts' own wife had instigated the shooting and had refused to help her husband as he lay dying in their own front yard where he bled to death. Brother George, who had witnessed the incident in the barn, tried to shield his father and wrestled gun away from Dover, but was beaten so badly that he never recovered. Grandma Roberts left for Covington soon after, taking the children and the now sickly George with her, forcing him to fetch coal from the cellar despite his frailty. 
He would collapse under a sackful on the stairs only a month after his father was murdered, dying at the age of 19. Dilver Webster would serve over 20 years for the murder, become a farmer and have a family of his own. He and Skeeter would strike up an unlikely friendship before his death in 1983, and through their conversations, her suspicions about her own grandmother's involvement in the murder would be confirmed. The crime and its repercussions would forever change Mary Frances's mother, who from that day forward lost herself in grief in all of its manifestations. While still prone to wandering, now she seemed to be courting oblivion instead of seeking adventure. Later on, she would become an alcoholic, joining Skeeter's father in long blackout drinking sessions. Skeeter would later remember the rare Christmases where her mother was home as morbid affairs, long evenings filled with lamentations and bitterness and obsessive poring over the details of the murder of her father. She would also recall intervening during a number of her mother's suicide attempts, including having to slap a bleach bottle from her lips and sitting on her to prevent her reaching for a butcher knife. On one occasion, Ponzi attempted to jump from their Cincinnati apartment, where they had moved shortly after Grandpa Robert's murder, with three-year-old Mary Frances and her little brother bundled in her arms. She was dissuaded from jumping out of the third-story window by a gathering crowd. Shortly afterward, they returned to Kentucky, to the place that Skeeter would always call her hometown, Dry Ridge. The family moved into a two-story log cabin shared with her father's parents at the end of a long, winding dirt road shadowed by the pines. It would be here that Mary Frances, who by this time had earned her nickname of Skeeter from her paternal grandfather, Poppy, had begun to display the talent that would later propel her to fame. She loved sitting by the fire with her Aunt Harriet, harmonizing to the Grand Ole Opry on the radio. From Nashville, Tennessee, Prince Albert, the world's most popular smoking tobacco, brings you the South's most popular program, the Grand Ole Opry. <laughs> She would put on backyard shows for her friends and family, using coffee cans to curl her hair in elaborate dues, which changed with every performance. Then at night, she would regale her friends and little brothers and sisters with ghost stories she had gathered from her uncles, showing a dramatic flair as she scared the younger kids to tears under the blankets. Living with Poppy provided her family a stability that was often upset by her mother's frequent absences. Skeeter, being the oldest, mothered her siblings, but felt a profound need for mothering herself. She consciously transferred her affections to her father, an affable, hard-working man who tended to drink, but who was loving and patient with his family. After one of Skeeter's backyard shows had concluded, she heard her father say to his own father, You know what, Poppy? 
that kid of mine can sing. But Skeeter would grow stoop-shouldered early on from working in the tobacco fields alongside her family, only returning home at dusk where more work, because of her absent mother and her unenviable position as the oldest, awaited her. As sharecroppers, the whole family had to pull their own weight, and everyone had a job to do, even the little ones. In an effort to better their lot, Skeeter's father, who was a trained electrician, enlisted in the military during the Second World War and was assigned to a top-secret operation in East Tennessee. What this operation was, no one was allowed to discuss. On his infrequent trips home, he would always be preoccupied with esoteric texts filled with numbers and diagrams. When questioned as to their meaning, her father would cryptically reply, You'll know someday. Years later, he would be able to tell his family that his work had been helping to build the atomic bomb in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the very same bomb that would level Hiroshima. He would later say, It breaks my heart to know that I was in on that. I've regretted that more than anything I have ever done in my life. Skeeter would have her own first-hand experience with death and its uncanny after-effects at a young age. She was in her early teens when she became friends with a young girl named Elsie May, who was just a year younger than she. Elsie May was taking care of her invalid mother, who was dying of tuberculosis. Elsie May's father was a closed-hearted man who displayed little tenderness for his family, and Elsie May was often absent from school as she nursed her mother alone. After her mother's death, Elsie May awoke Skeeter one night and told her that she had just had the most beautiful dream. Her mother had been calling her name, she said, and she ascended a golden staircase to the very top to find her mother standing next to Jesus himself. Shortly afterward, Elsie would collapse in her kitchen while making biscuits, dying of unknown causes, as her father refused to allow an autopsy. She was only 15. But there would be still more tragedy to come. On the day of Elsie May's funeral, as the pallbearers bore the casket to the waiting hearse, they found that the back doors refused to open. Skeeter heard a lady in the crowd mention grimly that stuck doors on a hearse prophesied another death in the same family within a year. And before a year had passed, Elsie May's little brother, Junior, racked with guilt over his sister's sudden death, committed suicide by attaching a pipe to his exhaust and snaking it through the back car window. But her greatest tragedy, and perhaps also her greatest joy as an artist, would begin to unfold in 1947 in Covington, Kentucky, where her family had relocated. Here she would enroll in Dixie Heights High School, a.k.a. Ritzy Dixie, 
where she stuck out like a sore country thumb in a sea of pearls and cashmere sweater sets. Her first week seemed to be one gaff after another. That first Friday, she had paid a visit to the principal's office to discuss changing some of her classes, and in the lobby, it came upon a pretty, dark-eyed young girl with a strangely singed face. Some of her hair was missing, even one entire eyebrow. Skeeter remembered too late that she was staring, and the girl demanded to know what she was staring at, but fled before Skeeter could answer. She wouldn't see the girl again until Monday, where she found her sitting in one of her new classes. She was convinced she had made an enemy for life and shrank into her seat. But then a classmate asked the girl what she had sang that Saturday night at the well-known Renfro Valley Barn Dance, a couple of hours south of Covington. Skeeter barely had time to absorb this information, before the girl began belting out an Eddie Arnold tune, and Skeeter heard herself singing along in a high harmony far different from her usual alto. The sound of their two voices hung in the air for just a moment, and Skeeter broke out into a cold sweat as the girl began demanding to know where that sound was coming from. It was you, wasn't it? the girl said, standing before her desk. Skeeter could only fumble out a whispered apology before the girl broke out into laughter. Y'all hear that? She's sorry. You don't have to be sorry for nothing like that. It was beautiful. Betty Jack Davis sat down next to her new best friend and asked her an important question. Do you like hillbilly music? Skeeter and Betty Jack were solid from that day forward. They would spend that first day singing along with Betty Jack's Martin guitar on the lawn of the school, and then on to talent contests, school dances, supper clubs, and anywhere else two young Christian ladies could sing respectably without damaging their reputations. Skeeter would find out that Betty Jack had singed her face when her older sister Georgia had left the propane stovetop on without lighting it, which caused the resulting cloud of gas to ignite when the stove was lit, burning her. Betty Jack was nothing if not tough. Being alone at the time, she had driven herself to the hospital with only one eye on the road. Another secret that Betty Jack couldn't avoid sharing was the constant abuse she suffered at the hands of her own mother. Skeeter would witness, on more than one occasion, Mrs. Davis beating Betty Jack with a leather belt, kicking her, slapping her, or just ignoring her. Her father seemed completely unwilling or unable to intervene 
seeming as intimidated by his wife as Betty Jack was. They seemed to focus all of their affection and attention on the oldest daughter, not even having more than a single baby photo to George's hundreds. Such a disregard betrayed itself in a thousand little ways, and Skeeter would talk her friend out of running away from home many times. Despite these trials, Betty Jack seemed to have an unerring sense of destiny, telling Skeeter on the night of their first public performance, a rousing success which led to a standing ovation. That's why God sent you to me. We're going to be stars on the Grand Ole Opry. They practiced continuously together, constantly staying at each other's homes, even becoming blood sisters. If we weren't talking, we were singing, Skeeter said. If Betty Jack had a new dress, she made sure Skeeter had one too, in a contrasting color or pattern, so that they would always look like real sisters. When Skeeter's family decided to move back to Dry Ridge, she stayed with the Davises to finish high school and keep up with her now regular appearances. People were beginning to notice the girls, who were now calling themselves the Davis Sisters. You told me once You'd always love me I trusted you After winning a talent contest, they made their debut on a local show called The Midday Merry-Go-Round, where they were an immediate hit. They would sometimes do ads for local stores, being paid in merchandise, with Betty Jack often using her share to buy clothes for Skeeter's brothers and sisters. One day, a talent scout connected with WJR Radio in Detroit saw the two on television and offered them a spot on a popular nationwide TV show called The Barnyard Frolics. This was an important step up, nationwide TV, and they excitedly began to prepare for the long drive to Detroit. But in the midst of their joy, the owner of the supper club where they had been regularly performing grew uneasy when he heard of their upcoming trip. When pressed, 
He said he had had a dream just the night before about a terrible car accident involving the girls. Both of y'all were dying, he said, and I pulled one of you out, but I couldn't get the other one. Nevertheless, they traveled without incident to Detroit, where they shared a small apartment above the home of a preacher and his wife, friends of the Davis family. They worked in a chili stand by day and performed by night throughout the state as well as Canada. Their popularity led them to be invited to Nashville to record their first record, the Sonny James tune, I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know, on Friday, May 23rd, 
but soon came back around to planning the details of their trip to Wheeling, West Virginia that same night, where they would be playing their biggest show yet, the Wheeling Jamboree. Betty Jack commented that it was nearly as good as playing on the Opry. Skeeter would later remember Betty Jack's mother waving goodbye to them from her front porch and the odd exchange she had with her daughter. Y'all girls let us know where you are now, she said, because I ain't a feeling well and I might die before y'all get back. Betty Jack said to her mother, Oh, I'll be gone before you. They made it to Wheeling in time to unpack and unwind a bit before the show. They hung up their show dresses to hang the wrinkles out, and Betty Jack bought postcards at the hotel and at the Jamboree Hall where they were performing that night. But then, just before the show was to go on, a boy who was well known to have a crush on Betty Jack showed up backstage. She asked him if anybody knew that he had come up to Wheeling to see them, and he said, Sure, everybody knows. And Betty Jack, already stung from the disapproval she had experienced from her fellow parishioners, decided that they weren't going to stay in Wheeling that night. Everybody would be imagining all kinds of goings-on with that boy here, and she wasn't going to make it easy for anyone else to cast aspersions on them. Skeeter says herself that this was the only reason the two decided to pack up and leave, despite the inconvenience their exhaustion, the long distance, and the late hour. They were good girls who nevertheless always believed that they were just one slip away from perdition. It would simply not have occurred to them to question the black and white moral universe that seemed short on love and long on judgment. So out they went with their two male chaperones, back out onto the dark, two-lane highway, back to Kentucky, 300 miles away. Here's the all-night-long show featuring Charlie Walker and Mrs. Jimmy Rogers as our special guest. Fly, fly, speedy, fly that thing. They left shortly before midnight stopping in a little while at an all-night diner before continuing on. As she crossed the parking lot back to the car, suddenly Skeeter was blindsided by a singular sense of doom. She felt a pressure on her neck as if invisible hands were strangling her, and she climbed in the car silently, too panicked to speak. They were already driving when Skeeter managed to croak. Something's going to happen. I know. Something's a-fixin' to happen. Betty Jack looked at her puzzled. What's wrong? Skeeter asked. Do we have gas? Are we going to run out of gas? She was looking for something to hang her panic on. And even when her friend Patrick, who was driving, assured her that they had plenty of gas... They decided to stop anyway to give Skeeter a chance to calm down. Everybody out there and a great big happy welcome to another all night long show. 
They got cokes, stretched their legs. But her dark feeling was not fading. Let me drive. Maybe it'll relax my mind, she said. So they climbed back in, driving on through the August night, listening to an all-night country station out of Del Rio, Texas. And enjoy the fine songs we're going to be, uh, to be playing. Well, we've got a lot of good ones for you tonight, friends and neighbors. I want to thank every one of you out there for killing us. Then suddenly... Skeeter pulled over quickly, and the girls screamed their excitement, and her nervousness evaporated. I Forgot More Than You'll Ever Know would become the biggest country hit of 1953, and they sang along as they had sang with their own idols so many times before. And then suddenly, silence. They looked at each other uneasily. The radio had cut off right at the end of their song. They twiddled the knobs. They checked the wiring. They tried different stations. They restarted the car. But nothing worked. And then the dread began to return. There was nothing for it but to go on. Skeeter pulled back out onto the dark highway and hoped that the silence would calm her. The sun began to rise, but the dread remained. But she mentioned this to no one, simply handing the keys back to Patrick at the next stop and climbing into the back with Betty Jack to look at the map. They harmonized as they measured the miles between then and home. Skeeter remembers nothing else until she looked down at the now bloodied map being taken from her hands. Past Arc is written and produced by Carmen Park. Original music by Skillpack.